0: Welcome to the American Society of Pediatric Hematology Oncology podcast, known as the ASPOCast. This six-part series, The Road to Clinician Well-Being, will focus on various issues related to clinician wellness.
1: Greetings to the ASPO community. This is Deborah Zabladil, and welcome to the next episode of the ASPOCast the road to clinician well-being. During this segment, we will be discussing mindfulness and grief with Lori Schwanbeck. Lori and I had an opportunity to meet during a Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute that Lori co-facilitated. And I have grown to know her and respect her as one of the leading mindfulness thought leaders out there today not only does she speak on mindfulness, but is doing a lot of work on grief and other extensions of mindfulness as well. So welcome Lori and anything else you'd like to say about yourself by way of your background?
0: Lovely to be here with you and the community. It's a little Uh, addition to what you shared, I am a clinical psychotherapist. So I am a clinician as well, working with individuals in my private practice. And I've been doing a lot of work in the healthcare space. I've been working with physicians at Stanford, UCLA. Just developed a day-long retreat for the whole staff at the Valley Medical Center in San Jose with a recognition that healthcare workers need support healthcare and supporting frontline workers is near and dear to my heart. So I'm delighted to be here today with you.
1: Wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing that about your background and about your work, certainly in healthcare. Part of the reason that this series is even happening is Mm. because there is such a recognition around wellness, particularly for this community. They have actually formed a shared interest group or a SIG around wellness for their pediatric oncology, and hematology members. And we've had some really interesting conversations thus far, and I know this one will be as well. One of the things that I learned about mindfulness a while ago and in the program that you and I met each other through was all the many aspects of mindfulness that happen in so many different professions now, in the military, in preschool, in government service, and and just a whole host of areas. And certainly, healthcare. So what can you maybe just generally start off with and tell us about just the growth of mindfulness and some of the things that you see happening in the mindfulness space?
0: Well, mindfulness certainly has grown. And I think partially that's because there has been a lot of research done on the efficacy of mental training, which is at its very basic level, what mindfulness practice is and both looking at how mindfulness can change both the structure and function of the brain and the nervous system and in so doing change our behavior how we relate to the world a lot of good research showing the impact on stress and well-being and i think that's so important right now especially deborah we're living in these times for us that have a lot of layers of loss of catastrophe in our personal life and collectively So I think there's a recognition that we can't do a lot about what is happening outside of ourselves. I mean, certainly there are things we can do, but there are a lot of things that are beyond our control. And so that can lead us to feeling hopeless, helpless, overwhelmed. What mindfulness does, it says, okay, first of all, what can you control? And internally, how do you relate to the circumstances that we're in? The CDC i published some research recently that stress-related illnesses, anxiety, depression have tripled a bit since this time last year, and certainly all the healthcare workers that I've been working with, I mean, that's even, I would say, even higher. Uh, the personal anecdotes I hear, stress, burnout, exhaustion, insomnia, family strain, like people not being able to see their family because they're having to isolate themselves to to prevent spread of COVID. So there's this overwhelm. And then just the uncertainty, the uncertainty of the economic crisis, the mental health sort of ripple effects dealing with a pandemic. Here in the United States, there's a lot of stress and distress around the election. And I know that's certainly not specific even to the United States. There's, there's multiple crises that we're all navigating. So mindfulness, the ability to train our attention with attention is becoming recognized as a critical part of wellness, well-being, and self-care.
1: And do you think that because of all the stressors and the stew of everything that's in the pot at once right now, does it feel like, or do you have data to support that more people are seeking out Mindfulness practice?
0: Yes, absolutely. My clinical practice is, as almost all clinicians, especially those who practice mindfulness, is just skyrocketing, as are recognition and initiatives within the workplace of bringing mindfulness and mental health and well being into all sectors, whether it's healthcare, government, education the tech field, law. I mean, it's just, there's a recognition that as humans, we are increasingly exposed to conditions that we're not well-suited for or resourced for. So bringing in mindfulness is a way of meeting these conditions in a way that's evidence-based. It's as a practice for most part free. I mean, you can pay for coaching, you can pay for apps, you can pay for retreats, but the training of our attention and the ability to regulate our nervous system through our attention is always available.
1: That's the wonderful thing about it. And and we can get better at it all the time, which I love just that notion that anyone can start anywhere and they can get better and better over time as they work the practice. So if we can switch now to the topic of grief, which is really one of the things that we wanted to talk to you about today. It seems like you've done a lot of work around grief lately, maybe always, but I'm noticing that you're writing on it a lot. Do you feel like that has really surfaced with the onset of COVID and the spike of COVID and people losing friends and family members? Or was this something that has always been pretty steady and you've been working on it and counseling people on it all along?
0: Well, I will say that it's been present all along. I think as a culture, especially in the West, we don't know how to respond to vulnerability, which grief certainly is. So these more vulnerable emotions, such as grief and the experience of uncertainty, loss, that's always been something that people have turned to me for guidance on. Not just me, but people in the field of mental health. And we are experiencing grief loss and uncertainty at levels that we have not ever before and yes it's loss of people and loss of lives the losses though are touching every part of our experience there's a loss of community a loss of connection social isolation is just skyrocketing of course necessarily so with response to the pandemic but the cost of that is very very high there's a loss of even physical space as a healthcare worker, essential worker, and working outside the home, but your kids might be in the space. Your spouse might be in the space where usually they might not be a loss of being able to get outside even. And there's also a loss of the illusion of certainty. So mm. when we're faced with circumstances that are beyond our control, which so many things in life are. The idea that we have some sense of control is gone. So this existential loss is so prominent. And I would guess that for many people who are listening to us today, you're faced with that daily in your work, right? And so that's very confronting. And there's a loss even of faith in our government, like supplying the necessary equipment for us to do our jobs well. So the losses are multifaceted. So. In response to your question, is grief more prominent? Absolutely. And not knowing how to navigate this is a challenge for all of us.
1: You talk about the concept about disenfranchised grief, and I'm hoping that you might talk a little bit about what that means. My understanding is it's being unable to openly acknowledge your emotions, but maybe you can give us a little bit more of a background on that.
0: Disenfranchised grief is when the experience of our emotions not being able to be openly expressed or acknowledged. So it's not just that we're not acknowledging them to ourselves. It's that we're in interpersonal context where the expression of grief is not welcome, is Mm. minimized or denied. So in response to that, we attempt to suppress it. So in many of our workplaces, we are wanting to be seen as competent especially in the healthcare profession, when other people like our patients or patients' families might be experiencing a tremendous amount of emotion, we need to steel ourselves up and suppress it. Or when we want to appear to our teammates or our managers or staff in the hospital that we can handle it, we'll try and suppress it. So while it might be that suppressing externally looks like I've got it all under control, Research on emotional suppression by James Gross at Stanford shows that when we try to suppress our emotions, what actually happens is the biomarkers for distress elevate. So disenfranchised grief, the suppression and invalidation of an environment creates an increase of the stress response. And researchers show that when grief is disenfranchised and attempts to suppress it happen, The grieving process is longer and more complicated, partly because there's an overlay of shame that happens.
1: Mm. So we have
0: the biochemistry of suppression, which does not work for us. We have the psychology of shame, which then creates this whole complicated experience. So in our workplaces, validation of grief is essential to prevent us from tipping into this experience of disenfranchised grief.
1: So interesting. I'm thinking about some of the examples you shared where folks might feel that they want to look like they're in control yeah. or that they're holding it together. Mm-hmm. I guess I wonder how much of that we put on ourselves versus maybe we can more openly share our grief in the workplace than we think we can. What are your thoughts
0: on that? It's a really a good call out, Deborah. I think that and then we kind of blame on it. Like I can't do it because nobody else will accept it, but really right. it's an internal limitation. And again, it comes back to identity, right? Like that we might have a self image that I'm strong, I'm capable, therefore I don't want to show any sign of what might be considered weakness when it's actually mm-hmm. just a normal human response, right? So we might contain it. So it's important to recognize what really is the cause? And there might certainly not be a singular cause, but what are the causes and conditions that create a suppression or denial of grief? And one of the things that I think is so important for us in our workplaces and in ourselves is just to recognize our humanity. That it can be true that we can both be competent and vulnerable. It can be true that our vulnerability actually enhances our competency. So they're not mutually exclusive, but I think that there can can be and have been a preponderance of beliefs that being strong, oh, she handled that really well when she didn't cry, right? We have this conflation of strength and emotional suppression. So it's important to look at that.
1: I love that you can be both competent and vulnerable at the same time. I love that. Of course, and of course, if we think about it, our intellectual mind would agree with that, but sometimes we don't operate in such a fashion, right?
0: Absolutely. That's fantastic.
1: Okay. So I want to talk to you a little bit more then about, you know, how our community can respond to grief. The ASFO community is a group of clinicians, mostly physicians that are pediatricians in hematology and oncology. Mm -hmm. They are obviously put in a position where they're dealing with grief. And in situations of grief, they're either having to give tough diagnoses or prognosis that's not very positive. So given that it's sort of an ongoing part of their work, rather than, you know, a more episodic thing that most folks in other professions, you know, we're talking about our friends and our family, but this is actually a piece of their work. How do you think that leadership in healthcare organizations and other clinicians can best express grief and support each other in the grieving process?
0: It's important because I think that oftentimes we think that grief is something that we have to manage on our own. And then that amplifies again, that feeling of shame or repression. So one of the things that I see in my work with organizations is the importance, especially at a leadership level of normalizing the humanity, of ourselves and Mm -hmm. just calling it out. You know, you're doing noble work in the world and sometimes it's gonna be hard. And even as like a shift leader or um, someone in a leadership position within the hospital to say, this was what was hard for me this week and this is how I coped. So being able to model humility, vulnerability and talking about what got you through is a learning on multiple levels. I trust my leadership more when they express their own humanity. I learn from my leadership how they work through times of difficulty. And when someone expresses their own humanity and vulnerability, it opens the door for me to be real myself. When that happens, burnout is lessened. When that happens, loyalty and engagement to the organization absolutely increases. We want to give our best to people that we feel connected to and we feel cared for. So within an organization, just calling out, naming, this is a hard time. And like you said, this is not just a unique time for our, our listeners. This is chronic. If you ever have a challenge, what is your plan? Like to actually... Be explicit. Like, what is your healthcare plan? Make that part of the conversation. What do Mm -hmm. you do to de-stress? So Mm -hmm. many people I've found in critical care workplaces around the globe manage stress through something that might calm them in the moment, like excess drinking, scrolling and checking out on Facebook, marriages falling apart because people like seek contact and validation outside of the primary relationship. Instead of turning to that, open it up. What do you do to support you, Deborah? Make it part of the conversation. There's a term that I love, like what's your psychological PPE? At some uh, hospitals that I've worked with, as part of their huddle, they'll talk about that. They'll talk about what was one thing that brought a smile today. So not only making room for what's hard, but also expanding and uh, drawing out something that actually was uplifting because those things are can coexist and it's important for us to track for what's going well in addition to what's hard. Having an opportunity for people to connect back in with the meaning of why they do what they do. I've studied with uh, Rachel Naomi Raman, who has you know worked as, as an oncologist herself and and really talks about the importance of creating spaces where, people can reconnect to the why of what we do. So we don't get upended so much by the constant crises. That's a very roundabout answer. But I think at the heart of it is modeling vulnerability as a leadership, naming and validating that this is hard, creating opportunities for connection, whether that's in your huddle, Having conversations about mental health and sharing best practices and resources, and really this reminder of what's the why of why we're doing this.
1: Fantastic. Thank you. That's, that's really helpful. There's so much discussion of some of these conversations coming up in medical school. Mm-hmm. Um, and in residency programs. And I know that the interviewees in this series have said that wellness is becoming more of a topic, which is such a wonderful thing and something that really needs to happen. And hopefully these conversations can take life more frequently than they do now. But another thing that I wanted to just ask you about, we did go out to the community, the, you mm-hmm. know, some of the physicians that are members of ASFO, and we asked them a few questions about how they deal with grief. And I'd like to read you a couple of statements and then just sort of have you respond to them and, and think about, you know, what you might say to them on how they might handle the grief a little bit better. So the first person says, I'm acutely aware of grief after losing a patient. However, I'm not often acutely aware of the grief associated with giving bad news. Often after I've discussed bad news with families, I later notice the grief which usually happens when I'm then thinking about the conversation or going through the notes. So again, I think this person is saying, it's not just about the loss of a patient, which seems I think more obvious, right? But it's also about delivering that bad news. And then another says, I am not deliberate and often my grief is not addressed. And then goes on to say, I think it's most difficult to address the process of grief in times when the outcome is not expected. So it's many years down the road or even a little bit down the road where all of a sudden it's an unexpected death or a relapse. Any thoughts you have on how those two individuals might better handle their grief?
0: I think to, to respond to the first person who said that I'm I aware of the grief when I lose a patient. So that's a personal impact, but not immediately aware of it when I have to deliver it to the bad news to the family. So there's a way that when another person is involved, almost like their kind of professional self of holding it together has to show up. And in some ways that might be appropriate actually. And then it's not until later when this person is writing their notes that they feel the grief. And again, it's you know, you're you're not in your professional demeanor there. And I'm not saying at all that you can't show vulnerability when you're expressing bad news to a family. However, I think there's something about being able to hold the space for other people to, to have the breakdown if that's what happens, that's important. So I don't think that there's anything necessarily wrong, but one thing that I think is interesting in this is that it's through writing where There's more contact. And so there's been lots of research on the impact of expressive writing, journaling. And so it might be as a way to help move the grief, um, regardless of the context or circumstance that people try journaling. It's a way of just externalizing it. You get to be an observer to your experience. You get to touch into what's here and allow it to move through. So if, if someone were thinking, well, gosh, that sounds great,
1: but I don't really have time to journal, could they then sort of put sort of a placeholder in their mind that when they are writing their notes out after that conversation, that becomes sort of the trigger for them to consider their grief or what they're going through, sort of a mindful notification, if you will.
0: I would say I, I, that's a lovely idea. And if it's consistent that a person notices like, oh, when I'm actually, again, on my own, not needing to be in my professional role, that I notice it. One thing that I have found really helpful, Deborah, for people is to like, it's, it's, a, it's a quick little uh, shift in the mind to imagine an ally with you. Like who is someone who could be comforting to you so that here you are alone writing your notes, or maybe there's like a whirl of people around you, you're at the hospital, but who is that kind of figure that you can lean into a little bit as you're writing? And it could be a compassionate figure in your life. It could be a mentor, like just the imagination. It could be your grandmother. It's just like, oh, you know, this was hard. I am feeling pain. This is, this is really, there's this was a lot. And taking a breath and feeling that you're not there alone with it. So that's just something that I've found to be really resourcing for a lot of people in this time. When we're going through difficult emotions, our world can kind of collapse and we can feel really alone, like we're carrying it alone. Let yourself be held. And that kind of goes to the second experience that you shared with me is that this idea or experience that it's the uncertainty or unpredictability of circumstances that upend people. As I mentioned earlier, I think that this is a truth of our lives is that we live constantly in a world of uncertainty. And uncertainty is one of the most destabilizing, anxiety provoking conditions that we live in. Our brain likes to map out futures, right? And when we can't map out a future, something happens that's dissonant to what we, the trajectory we think we're going on, it's very deeply upsetting to us. And so a practice here is self-compassion because what can also happen is when I think something's going to turn out a certain way, but then somebody relapses or something happens, I can maybe blame myself. I can think, oh, what didn't I see? And then that creates a whole other layer of suffering, but like a recognition, wow, this was hard. This is not what I expected. And that's the first component of self-compassion. Compassion is just mindfulness. This is this is hard. The second component of um, self-compassion is a recognition of common humanity. Wow, I know that I'm not the only practitioner who's experienced a uh, patient relapsing or you know dying unexpectedly. This is hard. Other people have experienced this. And then the third component of self-compassion, what do I most need? I might need to reach out to a colleague. I might need to go for a walk. I might need to really hold myself with a tremendous amount of kindness and care instead of kind of going into self-blame. So mindfulness includes, like, I like to define it as awareness and appropriate response. I'm aware this is happening. How do I want to respond? Oh, wow, this is hard. What do I most need? And that is in a selfish way, what do I most need, but a recognition that I might need to seek out connection as, you know, something that's a resource.
1: You have talked about certainty a couple of times and the illusion of certainty. Mm -hmm. And I think that's such an interesting and and really very fundamental thing to remember is that we only think we have certainty, right? We kid ourselves that we have some element of certainty, which might be why this past year has been so difficult and why so many other things that we go through are difficult because we don't think it's supposed to be that way. So I think, you know, to some extent, remembering that there isn't a lot of certainty also helps, particularly for people in science. I would think that, you know, typically they're looking at outcomes and data and, and feeling a good sense of certainty. So that's got to be very jarring at a fundamental level when your, you know, your life's work has been around taking out the outliers and the, you know, the variables and looking for certainty and then you don't have it. So interesting. And if we're trying not to bring the stress of our day home with us. I would imagine we can end up burying those emotions like you talked about earlier. And then when those emotions are grief, then, you know, it goes back to what you were talking about, this disenfranchised grief, because Mm -hmm. we're not acknowledging it. So one of the members of the community said, I think it's most challenging for me to process my grief around my family. So how do you offer guidance there? Is there a way that that individual might think about some space between the busy workday and the family life where they're not bringing that grief or that anxiety into the home? What are your thoughts?
0: There's a few different ways to respond to that. I know that some of my healthcare providers I've worked with have felt very lonely in their experience right now, or always actually, because the work that they do is so unique and they're faced with circumstances that when they go home, their family members are like have no kind of reference point from a lived experience. So that can feel lonely and isolating. And that kind of goes back to one of your earlier questions around what leadership can do. That's why it's so essential to create contact points and connection within the staff. So two things come up with this question of how to process grief relative to the family and Home life. One group of physicians I worked with at Stanford created a ritual when they walked to their car from the hospital. They actually walked through a lane that had a lot of trees on it, which was very lovely to kind of help them. And with each step, they kind of imagined the grief falling from their body like falling leaves fall. So that was helpful for them to kind of just imagine that kind of being let go of and held. And then with their breath before they opened the door to go into their house. There is this ritual of transition. Sometimes it's important to actually bring our experiences home in such a way that we don't think that we have to create a um, hard line of separation. And so, you know, we talk about mindfulness and mindfulness is, as I said, how we attend to our experience. We can create mindfulness in our relationships as well. And what I mean by that, Deborah, is that just as we want to kind of be aware of and bear witness compassionately to our own experience, we can ask that of people in our lives. So some of the people that I work with have created a practice where they will come home at some point in their day or maybe once a week. I know it's hard. Everybody's really busy, but they dedicate 15 minutes. They half that one person gets half of it. And for like five minutes, say 10 minutes, a person just speaks about what's happening for them. And the person who's listening just simply listens. And this is very different than thinking that we're burdening our loved ones because it's not about them problem solving. They don't have to fix it. They're just simply bearing witness, acknowledging what is here. And that is a theme here today, the acknowledgement and validation, like this is what's happening is a very powerful gift and can help ease the burden. Now, sometimes we might want problem solving and sometimes we might want distraction, but we can let people know how we want to be listened to, but frame it in such a way that you don't need to fix anything. I just wanna let you know what happened in my day. I just wanna cry. And knowing that that person is not gonna know your lived experience, of course, that they can just bear witness. So that's what I encourage, both the practice of kind of letting it go as a sort of ritualizing it as a transition between work and home and being able to just speak what's true for you.
1: That's a lovely way to look at it and really to take the idea away from burdening that other person to really sharing and bearing witness. I love that. If someone knows they're going into a really tough day, they know that there will be grief involved potentially for themselves and others. Is there anything that you think they can do proactively or to set themselves up for you know the kind of day that might be ahead and how to best get through it?
0: Two things come up that I've actually already mentioned. One is bringing an inner ally in. And, you know, I'm reminded of Rachel Naomi Remen's work, just like, you know, who's the hand on your shoulder as you are going into this hard day? It could be, again, a mentor, someone um, that you can lean on. Sometimes it might be a person. Sometimes it might be like the image of a, a tree that you're kind of carrying in. And while this might seem a little woo-woo, it's not at all. It's really about a shift in mindset that... Um, allows us to feel access to parts of ourselves that are a little uh, stronger right so it's really this recognition that okay i am needing to you know deliver bad news do this difficult thing and i Come here standing here from a long lineage of healthcare practitioners or you know, whatever it is. So there's that way of resourcing. The I think I have to do it all on my own and I am responsible, that kind of collapse into a singular self, it's not very skillful. It's very stressful. The other thing is the self-compassion practice. And, you know, again, the three components. First, mindfulness. Wow, this is this is hard. I'm aware that there's anxiety here, I'm aware that I feel trepidation. The second thing, common humanity, other people have gone through this, I've gone through this, I'm not alone in this. And then the third, what do I most need? What can be of service? And that what can be of service is that movement from self-compassion to compassion for others. And when we orient that way, we're connecting ourselves to um, something, something bigger than ourselves when we're feeling pain, whether that's emotional or even physical, like just this phrase, let this belong to something greater than. And mm. it's actually a um, something when I was getting some work done after I was in a near fatal accident, I was getting some procedures done in the hospital and a nurse said that to me. She said, you know, don't focus on the, the, the point of pain. Let this be absorbed by your whole body. And I was like, oh, like let this be held in something greater. It was such a lovely, way of me to open my awareness. Another phrase that I use that is really powerful is, and this too, and this too. So it's like, okay, and this too, this, this suffering, and this too, this joy. And it, again, it opens us up into seeing that whatever we're facing in the day or anticipating in the day, it's part of a larger unfolding. So this moment is hard. The next moment might be, there might be a moment of joy. The next moment, there might be a a bit of confusion. So we hold our experience with the awareness that we have made choices. You have made choices in your life to be of service in a realm where there there is a lot of pain and suffering. And that it's, there's a, larger, uh, there's a larger holding that if we can tap into and feel, it eases the burden in our own heart.
1: What a great note to end on. Thank you so much. This has been Lori Schwanbeck from the Bay Area. And as always, I've learned a lot from you today. I know the members have as well and really, really do appreciate your time and all your knowledge and the perspective that you have on, on mindfulness and grief. Thank you,
0: Lori. My pleasure. Thank you so much. And a deep bow to the people who are listening. You're doing some vital and important work. This has been another installment of Aspocast, the road to clinician well-being. To get more information on the American Society of Pediatric Hematology Oncology, please visit www.aspo.org In addition to this podcast series, the most recent webinar on physician wellness, can be found on the website under the Knowledge Center tab.